It's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday edition. We'll talk with BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler about biogenesis and PEDs, new fantasy formats, buy lows and sell highs, and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. has been introduced for his first at bat, and he heads to the plate to a standing ovation. The new Major League consecutive games played record holder, one of the greatest players to play the game, Cal Ripken Jr., Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, August 6th, and show number 33 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler, we'll have commentaries from the experts at the site he founded, BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Oakland A's Addison Russell, and in Master Notes, HQ general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about the real Will Myers. It's going to be another big show, so thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? 13 more guys suspended? We gotta talk some baseball. I know a lot of people think we shouldn't talk about it at all, but the news is well known by now. Major League Baseball has suspended 13 players, including active Major Leaguers Alex Rodriguez, Nelson Cruz, Johnny Peralta, Everth Cabrera, Antonio Bastardo, and the DL'd Francisco Cervelli for PED use. Only Rodriguez will appeal his suspension. The rest have already knuckled under and left the game for the rest of the regular season. This is going to affect pennant races in the real game and in fantasy leagues as well. But even while the pundits and the mainstream sports media celebrate these suspensions as a great day for the game, which of all the things it is, it is surely not a great day, there seems to be a real risk that the suspensions are not going to close the book on PED use in baseball. Rather, as our guest Ron Chandler wrote in his column recently, this is all just the first scene in the first act of a long theatrical production, a tragedy in who knows how many acts that will have to address some questions only now seeping to the surface. Questions like, why are almost all of the suspended players Hispanic? Questions like, in the press release announcing the suspensions, Bud Selig again reiterated that baseball's testing program is the best in pro sports. So how come this best of all testing programs only caught one guy? And how come he got off clean because of flaws in the testing process? Questions like, if the only way for a player to get caught is to be stupid about his transactions with his PED supplier, doesn't this approach just push all the activity further underground? Questions like, how come the teams never get punished? And questions like, why are these medications, commonly used by patients all over the world under their doctor's care, not allowed to this group of people? Why do we always call them drugs? Why is it okay to have Tommy John surgery, but not okay to use HGH to help heal an injury? Why is it okay for a player to have LASIK surgery to enhance his natural eyesight, but not okay for that same player to use Decadurabilin to enhance his natural strength? We won't be able to get anyone from MLB to answer these questions, but we'll ask them of our first guest, Ron Chandler. 
and leading off our feature interview with BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. Ron, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's always great to be on, Patrick. Thank you. I like to ask our feature guests how they're doing in their experts' leagues. How about you? Yeah, not a question I like to be asked this time, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> not a good year. Uh, you know, last year was a great year. I finished uh, second second, and third in my three experts' leagues. And this year, I'm just trying to stay out of the cellar. And I've never finished in last place in any league ever. But here I am in 11th place in Tower Wars and uh, the FST Experts League. I've sunk down to now about 10th place. Um, the only league where I'm doing halfway decent is in the uh, the XFL, but I thought I was going to be a, a contender in that league, and I'm um, kind of in fourth and fifth place, kind of scuffling around because I've got a bunch of underachievers like uh, Billy Butler and Jason Hayward and Chris Medlin. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that team's not doing as well as I thought, but, you know, fourth place, fifth place is still better than uh, 11th. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my year this year. And the XFL being a keeper league, finishing fourth or fifth, especially if you've gone all in, pushed some of your chips into the into the pot as far as prospects and stuff, a fourth or fifth place finish can really uh, be a disaster for you for the next couple of years. Yeah, it, it really can, because I finished in third and fourth the past two years, so I was actually fourth and third, so I've been kind of building to uh, to have this run this year. I really thought this year was going to be the year. And uh, it just uh, things just haven't come together. I, in fact, I, I had an opportunity last month to trade Jason Hayward for Troy Tulowitzki, and it was just before he got hurt. So I think Tulowitzki, had he stayed healthy, would have been a nice bump for my offense. But uh, I think uh, this year is going to be uh, – I'll just try to finish as high as I can and, and give him one last shot next year before I start rebuilding. What one thing do you think has gone really right for you in any one or more than one of your experts' leagues? Really, not a lot. I think, I think in the XFL, the the only thing that's gone right is I have been able to stay as high up in the standings as I have, given all the underperformers. You know, I mentioned a few. I've also got Austin Jackson. I've got Jake Peavy. I mean, these were the core players for my team going into the season. So, uh, the fact that I've been able to cobble together enough uh, solid players to keep me uh, somewhat in contention is is probably the only good thing I can see coming out of this season. And uh, you said you've had a lot of underachievers. Has anything gone terribly, terribly wrong in any of your leagues? Well, uh, I mean, just the fact that I'm in 11th place in Tau Wars. Uh, for the second year in a row, I was trying to uh, punt batting average at the draft, which did real well for me last year and finished in second place. Um, but this year, um, not so much. And, you know, players like Ioannis uh, Cespedes, you know, significantly underperforming, losing Ian Kinsler for a little while. Uh, and the only solid starting pitcher I've had all season is Chris Sale. And needless to say, on the White Sox, he's not getting very many wins. So, uh, no. yeah, not so good. I'd like to talk to you about uh, one of your fanalytics columns recently at BaseballHQ.com, in which you said the biogenesis scandal is what you called Act 1, Scene 1, of a drama you think will take time to fully play out. The analysis seems to have two themes, and I'd like to ask you about both of them. The first one being the idea that there is an element of theater about this. Act one, scene one, that's a theatrical term. Absolutely. I, I think this is wonderful theater, actually. It's, it's, uh, uh, but I think this is a completely new story going on now. I mean, before, players actually got suspended for failing a drug test. And now... Um, they're going to be suspended for not necessarily failing a drug test. And I think that changes the entire story here and opens up the question as to who else out there might also not be failing a drug test yet be potentially suspendable, if you will. 
Um, you know, given the fact that Biogenesis is just one of many, many uh, laboratories and distribution centers for uh, performance-enhancing drugs, who knows who else is doing what with what organization? It just completely opens up uh, an entirely new chapter in, in the whole PED issue here. And I think we are at the very beginning of, of something completely new that's going to take us in a, a completely new direction. There's also been an element of theater. I think uh, what what the column made me think of is first you have Major League Baseball and the commissioner basically making a fairly theatrical presence out of here's what we're doing to get rid of this big problem. And then on the other side, you have the players, especially the ones who've been caught, like Ryan Braun, first declaiming their innocence and now uh, uh, certainly a, a huge number of them coming out in the press and saying, we're so against this that A-Rod should not only be suspended for a year, but he should be suspended for life and possibly drawn and quartered or you know whatever they can arrange for him. And, and it it seems a bit like there's an element of a PR battle here shaping up as who's more against PEDs, us or them. Well, you know, I, I'm not even sure that it's all about the PEDs either. I mean, uh, some of the analysts and writers are making a case that the players are coming out against Ryan Braun now and, and you know, Max Scherzer and, and Zach Greinke. They're, they're making cases that they're, they're very unhappy with what he did. But if you really listen to what they're saying they're not really coming out against him using PEDs. They're coming out against him lying. I think people are upset because he has been a better actor than everyone else. I mean, he put on an incredible performance uh, denying all his uh, his use of PEDs back, you know, 18 months ago. And now it comes out that he basically was just acting. So um, I think I think the players, the writers, and all of us uh, feel like we've been duped, and uh, we don't like that. And I think it, that's the issue even more than the actual PED use, because as we know, the players are still using, and it's still very prevalent. How do you say that? What What is your evidence for that? Well, the fact that Nelson Cruz is going to get a suspension, and he's never failed a drug test. So, uh, and Everett Cabrera, and Johnny Peralta, and... Uh, so where's the evidence that they actually used? I mean, they've never failed a test. And Major League Baseball is making their case that uh, testing is the be-all and end-all to determine whether or not players are using. And now they're saying, no, we have another method. Well, it seems like the other method is the gathering of documentary evidence and, and eyewitness testimony, some of it bought and paid for, unfortunately, or or having people testify at the point of a lawsuit. And from from those points of view, it... It is not as strong, perhaps, as a uh, a valid positive test, but nonetheless, it is possible to prove that somebody's cheating without catching them in the act. You know, if you, for instance, had somebody with videotape. Uh, okay, but do we know that's the case, that we have videotape evidence of, of players shooting up or taking pills or what have you? You know, from what I can tell, a lot of this is uh, names, handwritten names on, on really poorly kept records. Uh, and it's... It's a lot of circumstantial evidence, I'm afraid, and I just, as as long as Major League Baseball continues to hail as having the one of the best drug testing programs in professional sports, um, I think there's 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 something else going on here that's giving them too much free license to uh, to do other things. And I I completely agree with that point of view, but I, I'm just suggesting that the idea that documentary evidence isn't enough. They laid it out in front of Ryan Braun, and he bought it. I mean, he certainly fought it once before on, on weaker technical procedural grounds. 
And if the evidence were weak and he had decent lawyers and God knows he can afford them, couldn't they have looked at the documentary evidence and said, you'll never get anybody to to, to accept this as as proof of, of anything, but they accepted it as proof of something. So clearly there's at least some validity to the evidence that MLB has acquired on some of these guys. Yeah, and it's a fair point. I guess I guess the larger point is what else is out there that they, they haven't just happened to have caught because an article was written in, in a Miami newspaper about biogenesis. I mean, it's not the only uh, company out there that's doing this stuff, so... It just opens up a huge new uh, avenue for potential research and investigation into whoever else, how many other players out there. And, you know, the fact is that there have been some sources that saying that there, there may be upwards of 80 players who have been touched by this whole uh, investigation. And it's only the small core number of players who actually get suspended now. But there are others out there who've been touched by this who may be guilty at, and at other, some other level. So uh, maybe the evidence isn't as, as strong against those guys, but it doesn't mean that they're not taking PADs. And I, again, I completely agree with you. And it, it almost seems like the, uh, the crime or the sin being committed by the players who are being named and caught is don't be stupid about how you go about this and be a little more circumspect and not writing checks and, and not putting your name on anything and, you know, take just taking steps to, to be like mobsters, basically, and don't put your name on anything, and you'll be fine because, uh, as you said, they trumpet at every opportunity that this drug testing scheme of theirs is the best in the world, and yet with uh, at the very next breath they turn around and say, and it didn't work in the case of Ryan Braun, Nelson Cruz, Johnny Peralta, whoever else gets suspended. And it makes me wonder, why aren't their lawyers going to go before whoever they have to go before and make that very point? You guys claim this is the best drug testing regimen in the world, and you didn't catch anybody. And uh, like I said, that's a fair point. It, it really begs the question of whether this testing program is, is even working or, or what else is it hiding? You know, I, I've often said, and I wrote in my article as well, you know, do we even know that... Uh, players are not given a heads up before the testers arrive to take their tests. You know, does it take that much to give a, a travel agent, a, you know, a little money under the table to give them a heads up when they're booking a, a flight for a tester to go out to to Fenway Park or Petco or, or wherever or wherever the testing is being done? I, I think this is, you know, maybe I'm being overly cynical, but I think this is something that's reality, and we have to, you know, consider that this is a part of what's going on, and and it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. So no matter what Major League Baseball does, and this is this is the larger issue too, uh, long term, as no matter what base, Major League Baseball does, players are always going to be looking for an edge somewhere. So if they clamp down on this now, maybe there's a new designer drug that's coming out next week that they won't be able to detect, uh, or maybe there's another loophole somewhere that they won't be able to easily close up. So I mean this this is not ending anytime soon, which is another reason why you know Act One, Scene One, this is just the beginning here. How does the uncertainty of who's using and who's not affect your ability as a projection um, generator to generate accurate projections? It's horrible. It's awful. I mean, it's, it makes my job incredibly difficult because I don't know that whether the numbers that I'm looking at are real or inflated or uh, somehow skewed by whatever else is going on. So, you know, I'm looking at Everett Cabrera, breakout season, all these stolen bases, are they real? You know, when he comes back, what is he going to do? Uh, you know, and we have, you know, from last year, it makes it even more difficult. The three players who got suspended last year, Melky Cabrera, Bartolo Colon, and Yasmari Grandel. I mean, what did the three of them do this year? 
Cologne got better, Cabrera got worse, and Grandel got hurt. So we can't even draw any conclusions of what these players are going to do once their suspensions suspensions are over. So, um, yeah, it it just muddies the waters incredibly. You know, I've been talking about um, using less precise measurements, uh, methods for doing projections like the Mayberry method to try to widen the error bars to give us a little bit more leeway in trying to project performance and, and underlying skills. But I don't know if we're ever going to be able to uh, get as good a handle on it as we need to for our fantasy games, given the, the, the massive uncertainty that PEDs have, have thrust upon us. Let me ask you a more philosophical question about this, and it is this. Under the care and supervision of a, of a trained medical doctor who knows how to use anabolic steroids and HGH and all these things, there really are not harmful substances in and of themselves. It's when they're used in dark corners and players are injecting each other with uh, you know, uncertain substances and there's no quality control and all these sorts of things that, that the potential bad side effects tend to, tend, tend to come up. And if you look at uh, PEDs as we understand them as medical things, we tolerate Tommy John surgery. We tolerate LASIK surgery. We tolerate various other kinds of medical interventions that allow players to extend their careers, to enhance their abilities, and so forth. Why is it that this particular medical intervention is ruled to be off-limits? That's a good question, and I agree with everything that you say. Um, I think that in the right situations, I mean, I've taken steroids. I mean, Me too. Most people take steroids for, uh, for short periods of time for different medical conditions and whatnot, and under a doctor's care, they, they're certainly safe. Um, so I, f- from my perspective, a lot of the question comes down to why we're making such a big deal out of all this, and I think a lot of it is, comes down to the fact that athletes, professional athletes are role models for our children, and we don't want them doing things that we wouldn't want our children to do. Um, The flip side of that, and I've written about this also in the past, is that, you know, all most professions come with a certain amount of risk, and when you pursue a a profession and try to be the best as you can be at that profession, you take on that risk, whatever it may be. I mean, if if you decide you're going to be a firefighter, you take on the risk of of possibly getting hurt fighting a fire. If if you're a a police officer or in in the military, uh, you take on the risks associated with that. Now, if an athlete wants to be the best that they can be, and that involves taking some additional help, um, I think that should be a part of the risk profile that you you take on when you decide to become a professional athlete. Um, but right now, that's not an accepted perspective. It's not a, an, an accepted philosophy. Uh, so we look very down upon uh, players using these drugs. And, and you know, class, as soon as we say the word drugs, that's what casts this whole negative. Uh, impression on this whole thing, right. uh, but really, it's it's just a way for um, someone at a certain profession to be the best that they possibly can be. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I think in a different world, in a parallel universe, this would be very different, and and uh, PEDs would be more controlled and more uh, liberally used in 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 a way that uh, athletes could have access to them and and use them to improve their performance. Our mutual friend Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter has argued that the uh, that the PED calling it drugs and making it a crusade and so forth is really more about a way for Major League Baseball owners to get the upper hand over the players in the negotiating arena. What do you think of that argument? 
Yeah, I've read Joe's stuff, and it's great. And while I don't agree with him on some of the things that he writes, um, I, I definitely see his point on that, and it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Major League Baseball uh, was be, was behind the negotiating uh, for the first you know few decades of, of the Players Association. They they were constantly losing most of those those uh, those contract agreements. But this is one issue that they've uh, appeared to have uh, found some. Uh, momentum with, and so they're riding it as much as they can. And uh, the fact that the the players' union right now is not fighting as as hard as they used to fight different issues back uh, in the in the 80s and 90s uh, is just helping them gain momentum on this issue. While uh, if, if you take a look at what Joe wrote, he makes a, a good point that really it, it's not even about the issue anymore. It's 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 about gaining ground and, and gaining power in, in these negotiations, and that's really all it's about. You had another fanalytics column at BaseballHQ.com arguing that a big part of the reason that we like playing fantasy baseball is to exercise some control over the game that we love to watch, but that the game itself, the, the fantasy games we play, are changing in favor of randomness. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, th- this kind of came out of a column that Steve Gardner from USA Today wrote last week uh, where he said that fantasy leaguers love chaos. And it was a statement that, that kind of caught me off guard and, and made me wonder whether that's really true. Do, do we really like chaos? And, and the point he was making is that, uh, you know, our favorite time of year is draft day where we have, there's, you know, an adrenaline rush and we have to think on our feet quickly. And at this trading deadline this past week also, it was a lot of, we were expecting a lot of uh, uh, activity. It didn't really come, but typically there's, there's some activity in trades that force us to uh, make some roster decisions on the fly. And that, along with the certain rules that leagues have for managing of free agent acquisition budgets, just really muddy the waters and basically creates a sense of chaos in in the fantasy environment. And he, think, he made the point that we thrive on that. We really enjoy that chaos. And I think to an extent we do. Uh, there's, there's a certain excitement to it, but the game itself was founded on, on, on a sense of control, which is antithetical to that. So you know, I took a look and, and looked at our rules that have evolved over time, and, and really we have evolved into a game that's uh, less control and more randomness. I mean, even just simple things like um, our founding fathers in 1984, when they wrote Rotisserie League Baseball, talked about this game being a, an auction league and, a, and an eight-category game. And we've moved from auction to more snake drafts, uh, mostly for ease of automation, but the snake drafts... Uh, adds more of a bit of randomness to the process of stocking your roster. And moving from eight categories to ten categories is more to manage. So, again, it, it, it takes away some control and adds a little bit more randomness. So I guess, you know, the conclusion I drew was that, yeah, I, I suppose that we are moving more towards a random game. And in the end, uh, I, I suppose the more random it is, the more ch- the, the better chance everybody has to compete and contend and do well. So, um uh, I guess that that is is true. Maybe we do love chaos. I guess. I, I suppose it must be that we love chaos if we don't otherwise like our chances of being able to compete as much as the guy who's willing to put in the you know the two hours a night of homework in the off season to identify his players and so forth. I and I generally agree with the idea that we're getting more random in the game. Uh, we're starting to see shorter term games, uh, like we'll talk about in a second, but even daily games, and. I think that we agree that that means skill is leeching out of the game to some extent, which frustrates me. Sounds like it frustrates you, but could it be that guys like you and me are just a little control freaky? 
don't you have to be control freaky to play this game? I think I think that is how it was founded. We wanted to be able to control our teams. We wanted, you know, I'm convinced that fantasy baseball arose and became popular because we were kind of sick as as general fans watching our favorite players uh, use free agency to jump from team to team. It was hard to generate some loyalty and allegiance to your team because the players changed every year. But as fantasy leaguers, and especially in keeper leagues, we could build our own teams and we can, you know, quote-unquote own these players and feel like we have a sense of control over these these hybrid teams, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you, we did have to be control freaks, but now I think it's becoming more of a gambling game. And that, you know these day one day games yep. is certainly feeds into that you know uh, our need for um, immediate gratification and and that type of thing. So we we uh, you know, we we're, we're driven to these shorter term games that provide us uh, a quicker payback, a, a, a quicker thrill. And I think that's that's the, just our society in general. The internet has fed that for the last ten fifteen years, and that's that's how the industry is kind of moving. I was going to ask you about that because it seems like that the the goal of having a, a control based game of dedicated, deep, deeply involved fans is antithetical to the needs of the fantasy baseball industry to get as many people involved as possible, and uh, maybe that because the industry wants to draw in more people, it figures out ways to make the game more luck than skill. No, you're absolutely right, and that's. Uh, the problem is if you've got somebody trying out a game for the first time, a new fantasy leaguer, and he doesn't do well, he's going to be turned off by it. And you don't want to lose them before they've even engaged into the, uh, into the hobby. So you want to try to find a type of game format where they have as much of a chance to win as anyone else. And that means uh, adding as much randomness and, and uh, uncertainty as you can. And that's why these short-term games and games that uh, promote more random results are very popular because everybody thinks they can win on any given day and any given time. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, the founder of BaseballHQ.com. And, Ron, this seems like a good time to talk about your uh, career, if you will. You, the last time we had you on the show, you mentioned that you were gradually withdrawing from the day-to-day operational responsibilities at BaseballHQ.com because you wanted to try some new things. And I'm wondering, in general, how's that going? What are you up to? Uh, yeah, it's going well. I'm in the process of building a new website that will be launched within the next few months. And, and the focus of the site is going to be on uh, looking at different innovative new game concepts. And I guess it's, it's a good springboard here to talk about that. During the, during the month of July, we tested out a, um, a one-month game that's just wrapped up. Uh, and uh, we, we got quite a, quite a, bit, uh, quite a great turnout, and, and people have really enjoyed this. And we're going to do a survey next week to kind of fine-tune some of the rules and see how we can make this even better. And, and hopefully for 2014, um, I'll be rolling this out as, as, uh, as the core part of this new website. I'll also be doing a blog and some other uh, things on this website as well. But... Uh, Looking at new ways to play the game and, and keeping things fresh is, is so, kind of a pet project of mine, has been for the past few years, so uh, that's kind of what, what I've been working on. Yeah, you had a whole bunch of new formats and ideas to to tweak the game and get it to be more interesting and capture more people's attention and to make it more fun to play and more interesting. You had a lot of good ideas in that regard. Uh, you had that you mentioned your one month July league and the uh, promotional idea was sign up and you can beat Ron Chandler. How many people signed up? 
Uh, we had almost 500 people sign up. Uh, wow. I really thought I was going to fill maybe two or three 30-team leagues, so I thought maybe 150 people. Nearly five, 500 people showed up, uh, signed up. And uh, after we, we filtered out all those who uh, submitted uh, invalid or incomplete teams, we ended up with 444 teams uh, competing in 18 different leagues this year, which was which was phenomenal. And the uh, idea was to beat Ron Chandler. How many of them are beating Ron Chandler? <laughs> I counted them up this morning. 216 of the 444 are ahead of me in the standings. I, I wasn't expecting such a big turnout, so I only crafted three different rosters and then just copied them among the 18 uh, leagues. Uh, so, uh, as it turned out, two out of the three were not very good. One of them I tried to, to draft a $36 pitching staff. That was a mistake. Um, but uh, the third the third roster I drafted was not terrible, so I'm in, um, in the middle of the pack on those leagues where that roster is being used. But still, yeah, over 200 uh, teams are ahead of me right now. But you're ahead of slightly more than you're behind, so you're you're ahead of the 50% mark at least. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta see the the glass half full wherever you can, don't you? Yeah, that's glass half full, glass half empty. You know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a glass that is suboptimal at this point. Uh, yes. <laughs> however, you want to slice it. Uh, how does how does the one month league work? Refresh us on this uh, uh, the the format of it. Sure, it's it's a salary cap game. So we've set prices for every player based upon their performance to date. So uh, as of July 1st, uh, you know, players like uh, Mike Trout and Chris Davis, uh, Miguel Cabrera were at the top of the pricing. Uh, and players that had been struggling or were injured or whatnot were near the bottom. So um, David Price was a $1 player for this monthly league, which meant that he was on a lot of rosters. Uh, Hanley Ramirez similarly was a $1 player. Uh, Yasiel Puig was like a $6 player. So there are quite a few interesting buys there, and you, you couldn't roster all of them, so you still had to pick which ones you think were going to perform better in July. Uh, and they were 30-man rosters, 23 active, 7 reserve, and you could make uh, moves twice a week before each series. So on Mondays and Fridays, you could uh, change your roster, switch out pitchers who weren't pitching that series, and put in pitchers who will, that type of thing, uh, looking for good matchups. Uh, and uh, at the end of the month, uh, you know, we just uh, it was a, a four by four game uh, with the hybrid categories. We used things like on base percentage and runs produced, um, and uh, saves plus holds. So it was a little bit different than standard. But uh, all in all, the the the, uh, the response has been great. A couple of the leagues uh, uh, had internal chats going on on a regular basis, and uh, it, it turned out to be a lot of fun. And uh, I understand that the uh, league was extended a week into August just to allow for the fact that we missed uh, the All-Star break. Sure, yeah. I mean, All-Star All Star week was kind of a short week, so uh, we ran it five weeks instead of four. Uh, having looked at it, were there any strategies or approaches that seemed to be generally more or less successful than basically picking uh, just picking a team and, and doing your best? Were there any oddball strategies that seemed to work? Uh, not so much oddball, but the, the seven-man reserve list was critical in this game, what we found. And I think the teams that stocked those reserves with more pitchers than hitters tended to do well. Uh, for the, the three rosters I put together, I, I chose four pitchers and three hitters. And it turned out that um, maybe just because I was lucky enough with not too many injuries on the hitting side, but there were a few hitters on my bench that didn't get to do anything all month, and they were kind of wasted. 
Um, one thing I, you know, I, I did determine that if you're going to draft two $1 catchers, there's really no point in putting a catcher on your bench because even if one of those catchers uh, gets hurt, you're really not losing that much anyway, and that was a mistake I made. Uh, but you know, overall, you know, one 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 of the leagues, uh, um, a team drafted a $19 pitching staff and ran away, uh, is running away with that league. So uh, yeah, I mean, there were, there were lots of different ways to do this, and it, it, just like in, in in traditional leagues, it all comes down to picking the right players, and 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 that's really what it is. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, the founder of BaseballHQ.com. And, Ron, these last few weeks I've been asking our featured guests to give us some picks on players to buy low and sell high. Easier said than done, I grant you. Uh, A hitter and a pitcher in each league, in each category. And so maybe we'll start with the buy lows in the American League. Who's a hitter you think you could buy low on? Uh, I'm I'm going to try to buy low on Ioannis Cespedes. Um, he's had a really disappointing season, but if you follow what he's been doing, his July is is kind of interesting. He, uh, I think he took a more deliberate approach at the plate. He raised his contact rate to over 80 percent, and his walk rate was up over uh, about 11 percent, which was kind of different than what he'd been doing in the past. And I think maybe he's making the right adjustments. That uh, maybe the last couple of months of the season he'll uh, he'll do a little bit better. So I'm hoping for that. How about in the National League, a hitter you could buy low? Uh, I think there's some people who may be a little bit put off by Justin Upton still after his hot start. He had horrible uh, May and June. Uh, July was a little bit better. He batted 292 in July, but still uh, not any power. His homer in the fly ball rate was only about 4% last month. Uh, but yeah, he's a talented player, and uh, I don't think it'll take much for him to kind of put things together and maybe have a good stretch. How about a pitcher in the American League who might make a good buy low? Uh, I'm actually going to give you two because these are two guys who are really intriguing me. The first first is Bud Norris. Um, I think on the Orioles, he's going to do really well. I think for a lot of players, the environment has a lot to do with, with how they can put their skills together. And this is a very highly skilled player. He hasn't done that great this year, but he's shown great skills in the past, and I think he's going to do really well in the Orioles. And the other player is Rick Purcello on the Tigers. Um, an extreme ground ball pitcher, and if um, Jose Iglesias plays on a regular basis in their infield now, um, I think that can do wonders for him. So I'm, I'm intrigued by if, if Porcello can improve this uh, these last two months. And how about a pitcher in the National League who's a buy low? This is one's a tough one because he's really he's kind of been up and down this year. But Matt Cain of the Giants was horrible in April and unfortunately horrible in July, but he was great in May and June. I mean, he, he actually was vintage Matt Cain in May and June, so I'm hoping he can re, uh, reclaim that in August and September. So your by lows, Joanna Cespedes, Justin Upton, Bud Norris and Rick Porcello, and Matt Cain. Now we'll move to the sell highs. Who's an American League hitter you'd like to sell high? Actually talking about him, Jose Iglesias. I think uh, if Iglesias plays full-time, I think he's really going to be exposed. He batted only two oh five, I guess, in July, so he's already starting to uh, uh, be faced with having to adjust. And he's he's not... You know, scout. He was not scouted as a hitter anyway. He's a superb defender, so I think uh, his his batting is going to struggle in the second half. National League hitter you'd like to sell high? Yeah, I still think Yasiel Puig is is <laughs> is way over where he should be. Uh, his batting average in July was under 300, which is the start of the decline. Uh, but if you take a look, his expecting batting average is is, is nearly 100 points less than his batting average. His, his batting average on balls in play is a ridiculous 460, his, and his contact rate is, is kind of a pedestrian 75%. So I think, I think his numbers are finally going to catch up to him. 
I often wonder if he's another Vladimir Guerrero and a lot of those numbers just we have to throw them out because he's just that kind of a weird outlier. Uh, American League pitcher, you think you could sell high? I think I'm going to sell high on Chris Archer. Um, his uh, his strikeout-to-walk ratio is under 2. His, his batting average in balls in play is only about 220, so that's going to come back up. His strand rate is about 80%. And uh, his uh, expected ERA is over four. So again, right now everybody you know is looking at him because he's only given up like one run in the last thirty innings or so. But uh, during that time, he's he's faced teams like Minnesota and Houston. So I think uh, uh, I think in August and September he's going to come back down to earth. And finally, a pitcher in the National League we can sell high. Yeah, I'll give you two here again: uh, Jeff Locke on the Pirates and Travis Wood on the Cubs. Uh, both of them with. Sub three ERAs, both of them with their expected ERAs around four. Um, both of them have low batting averages on balls in play, low hit rates, high strand rates. Uh, Locke is a little bit different because he's he's got poor command but a high ground ball rate, whereas Wood has got better command but a low ground ball rate. But the, in in both cases, they're far outperforming uh, their skills levels right now. I talked with Steve Gardner last week. Uh, Jeff Locke was one of the players he talked to at the All-Star game about their advanced stats, and he brought up the idea to Jeff Locke that, you know, your sabermetricians look at your command ratio and your low strikeout rate, and they find you to be not that terrific of a pitcher. And Jeff Locke countered by saying he thinks he's an efficient pitcher and that getting all those ground ball outs is a very efficient way of getting lots of outs. Yeah, and ground ball pitchers can tend to uh, overperform their 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 sabermetric gauges, but uh, I, I think to the extent that he's doing it now with like a two thirty ERA is 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 just way way too good for for the underlying skills. Absolutely, Ron. We mentioned your ongoing analytics column at baseballhq.com. I know you also have a fantasy chat many Wednesdays at usatoday.com. As we wrap up, please tell our listeners how else they can stay in touch with Ron Chandler. Yeah, I'm, I'm always going to be around at Baseball HQ. You know, I've been getting some comments, people thinking that uh, I'm, I'm disappearing, but the rumors of my demise are, are vastly premature here. Um, I will be around all the time at Baseball HQ on the forums, my columns, but I will also be at this new website uh, to be determined shortly. And my personal website, ronchandler.com, will always have updates on my whereabouts. So uh, not going to be able to get rid of me too easily. And do you have a Twitter feed at all? Oh, yes, at Ron Chandler. I, I do tweet uh, on a fairly regular basis. So, yeah, I'm there too. And just before I let you go, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to talk with you again this season because of everything that you're doing uh, with the new site. But uh, put in a good word for the uh, Arizona Fall League and First Pitch Arizona. Wow. Very easy to do. I will be there as well, as I always am. Um, it is an incredible weekend. Uh, we've been doing this now almost 20 years. Uh, and a few hundred avid fantasy leaguers and, and writers that you, you read and listen to all the time will be there uh, talking about fantasy baseball, about baseball. We'll be able to watch some of the top prospects for 2014. Um, we've just gotten some inform- information about uh, the venues for the AFL games this year. Uh, they're opening up uh, the Camelback Stadium there for, for one of the teams, so we'll get to see a new uh, stadium when we go out there this fall. Um, but it's the first weekend in November, and it's uh, it's just uh, great to be out there after the World Series is over and, and, and spend some time talking baseball with uh, a few hundred fellow uh, avid fantasy leaguers. It's just a, a tremendous time. And uh, there's a new location this year uh, for the first time in many years. 
Yeah, we were at the, the Doubletree for over 10 years, 10, 12 years, but now we're at this new location, which is slightly more accessible to the highways and uh, to uh, to the west side of the, uh, the valley in Phoenix. Uh, it was always tough to travel to... Uh, uh, Peoria and Surprise Stadiums, but now with Camelback there as well, there's now three stadiums on the west side of uh, the valley, so uh, this new venue, this new hotel is right on um, the I-101 loop, uh, which will make it a lot easier to get to those new stadiums. And I can vouch for it. It's uh, We say draft day is the most fun day you can have. Uh, being at First Pitch Arizona has got to be a very close second. Ron Chandler, thanks so much for joining us, and if we don't get a chance to talk to you during the year, thanks so much for everything that you've done. Hey, well, uh, thank you, and I uh, appreciate all you've done with uh, Baseball HQ Radio and this podcast, and now twice a week, which is just great news. It just keeps growing and growing and getting better and better. Thanks, Patrick. Well, thank you, sir. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. Please keep listening. Our Minor League Minute and Master Notes are coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is... The ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy. I help run things at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 1st through 3rd in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2014's impact rookies, including the annual Rising Stars All-Star Game. Visit www.firstpitchforums.com to get the skinny and to register. Sign up by August 31st to get a 40% discount on the registration fee. It's like getting Miguel Cabrera in the seventh round. First Pitch Arizona, come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. We'll see you there. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Listen, you need to check out BaseballHQ.com right now. Catch up with features like the latest Baseball HQ Roundtable, a bunch of uh, BaseballHQ.com commentators talking about trading in keeper leagues. Dan Becker has a batting buyer's guide column looking at batter consistency. You want a consistent hitter if you're going to trade or otherwise acquire a guy for the stretch. And Dr. HQ Rick Wilton looks at Yadier Molina's troublesome knee injuries. Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have HQ General Manager and Speculator Columnist Ray Murphy on deck with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com Minor League Expert Rob Gordon telling us about Oakland A's shortstop prospect Addison Russell. The Oakland A's Addison Russell continues to emerge as one of the most dynamic prospects in baseball. Russell, the 11th overall pick in the 2012 draft, was lights out in his pro debut last year, hitting 369 while playing at three different levels. The A's were so impressed by his debut that they started him at high A, despite having just 58 at-bats at low A in the Midwest League. At just 19, Russell was the youngest player in the California League at the beginning of the season, and his youth showed. On June 5th, Russell was hitting just 215, and his plate discipline and confidence had eroded badly. Since that point in time, however, Russell has had a dramatic turnaround, hitting 333 in June and 344 in July. Since the minor league all-star break, Russell has had an OPS of 987, which is definitely playable for a middle infielder. 
Defensively, Russell still has some work to do, but it has the range and athleticism to stick at shortstop, where his bat is a tremendous asset. On the year, Russell is now hitting 271 with a 352 on base percentage and a very nice 506 slugging percentage in 332 at-bats. He has 27 doubles, 11 home runs, and 12 stolen bases. Long-term, Addison Russell has the potential to be a middle-of-the-order hitter while playing above-average defense at shortstop. Russell jumped from number 69 on our preseason top 100 list to number 15 in our midseason update and is a must-own in all keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything else that you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Texas outfielder Joey Butler, called up in the wake of the Nelson Cruz suspension, Cubs infielder Logan Watkins, and more. We also have a minor league watch list highlighting less heralded prospects who nonetheless seem to have a clear path to the majors. Looking this week at post-deadline possibilities like Oakland outfielder Michael Choice, the Angels right-handed pitcher Jared Grube, White Sox shortstop Marcus Semyon, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com does have you covered. Now it's Master Notes with HQ General Manager and Speculator Columnist Ray Murphy talking this week about the real Will Myers. Shortly before Will Myers was called up to Tampa in mid-June, a look at our player link page would have shown a rather uninspiring projection. 157 at-bats of four home runs, 19 RBIs, two stolen bases, and a 244 batting average. In terms of dollar values, practically the definition of a replacement-level player. We raised the playing time element of the projection when he got called up, but the underlying skills projected to be unimpressive. Myers has outperformed that projection with ease. In 139 at-bats through July 30th, he already has seven home runs, 27 RBIs, five stolen bases, and a 331 batting average. That stat line sure makes our initial projection look overly bearish. But does that mean we were wrong? Well, yes and no. In terms of outcomes, there's just no question that Myers has already destroyed our projection. But that doesn't mean the initial projection wasn't sound. Central to Myers' projection was a below-average 8% home run per fly rate. The MLB average for home runs per fly ball falls around 10%, and Myers had posted a 16% home run per fly in Durham this year. But when you make the AAA to Majors MLB conversion, and then also factor in that Tropicana Field saps right-handed power by about 17%, the 8% projection gets more reasonable. In terms of hit rate or BABIP, we assigned what we thought was a more optimistic initial number to Myers at 33%. Shortly after his call-up, we even nudged his home run per fly projection up to 11%, which effectively added a couple of home runs to his bottom line. That adjustment hasn't been nearly enough, as Myers has more than doubled our projected home run per fly rate with a 20% number so far. And his hit percent is flirting with the 40% level, well clear of our supposedly optimistic 33%. Can we really learn anything from these first 137 at-bats of Myers' big league career in terms of setting our expectations for the rest of the season and beyond? The sample size is too skimpy to support any firm conclusions. A couple of fly balls die at the warning track, or a few grounders don't sneak through the infield, and Myers' stat line would change quickly. For further supporting evidence of this, look at how Yasiel Puig has begun to regress after his scalding start, 
or what has happened to Jose Iglesias after his ridiculous surge in Boston a few weeks ago. The truth is, we don't yet have nearly enough evidence to project what Myers will develop into over time. Regression of his still lofty hit rate and home run per fly rate are good bets, but it's hard to say how far those will correct or how fast. There are only eight weeks left in the season, in itself a small sample size, small enough that almost any player can deliver an out-of-character performance that disproportionately affects your team's outlook, either good or bad. What do we do with this uncertainty? For starters, don't be married to the projections. At their best, they're just a guide, even when looking at a full season's worth of performance. At this time of year, they may not even be good enough to serve as a guide. The best approach is to chase a simple combination of playing time and skill. If you see someone who is going to get a chance to play and has displayed a skill that matches your current needs, that is probably all you need to make a decision. As for Will Myers, these next eight weeks will bring us closer to knowing what he really is. But we will still be well short of having a complete picture. That's the nature of our games, and hopefully, the fun of them. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ General Manager and Speculator Columnist Ray Murphy is a member of the Master Notes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, August 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler, our special interview guest today. It sounds corny to say, but Ron is truly a visionary figure in the history of fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and HQ general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy was our Master Notes commentator. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. You can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Feel free to join the almost 170 people who also follow me on my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our news and analysis show featuring League Watch News Reports and Todd Zola. On another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.